0: Okay, so uh, we're going to jump into our series now. So if you have a Bible, we're going to Romans chapter 4. Go ahead and turn it on or turn it to. Um, There's Bibles in the pew backs in front of you if you didn't bring one today. Uh, I bet by the time I get talking, you can also download the Bible app if you want to. (laughs) But uh, don't Google things too much. I'll lose you. So today we're going to talk about faith. What is it? What does it do, and what does a life of faith look like? To do so, we're going to look at chapter 4. I had a friend, we went camping um, with some friends, and I had a friend, Scott, and he asked me, "How, how as a church do you guys pick the sections of Scripture? When you're in a series like Romans, how do you pick the sections of Scripture in a series like this? I think it's a great question. Um, What we try to do our best is to focus on one full, complete thought of the author, and in the case of the book of Romans, it's the Apostle Paul. Now, do you guys know what Grammarly is? Does anyone know what Grammarly is? It's an algorithm that is basically this like souped up spell check. And uh, its design is, as you write, to basically tell you you're a terrible writer and here's a better way to be a better writer, right? And it does so with a smile. Like if you are writing something nice, it's like, oh, this is really happy. And if you're too serious, it gives you the emoji of like a frown face. That's Grammarly. Have you ever tried to run Paul through Grammarly? Grammarly. I promise you this is a really fun experience when I'm putting together a message or writing something and I have to copy and paste the Apostle Paul into Grammarly, this is what it most often says. And I quote, too many non-content words may indicate wordiness, consider rewriting. (laughs) Or my favorite, your sentence may be unclear or hard to follow, consider rephrasing. (laughs) And anyone who's actually ever read Paul says amen. But uh, all joking aside, parts of this letter to the Romans that we're studying are kind of hard to wrap your head around. It's a few thousand years old. Um, There's some ways that they communicate that are foreign to us, different times, different languages, different cultures. So when we read it today, um, it can sometimes come across as honestly just a little bit strange. Now, I was on my way home from um, a basketball game. I played with a group of guys on Tuesday nights, and on my way home, I passed this. I'm going to show you a picture of something. You guys ever seen this before? This is Sniff. Um, according to their website, welcome to Portland's boutique dog hotel in downtown Portland and Beaverton with overnight boarding, daycare, grooming, training, self-service, dog wash, and more. I'd love to know what more is. Um, they have a dog spa and all. Now, if this was your idea, you are a genius. Because in a city that sometimes seems to value, seems to value dogs more than people, you know your market. Well done. <laughs> okay, now I've probably offended someone, and that is not my intention. I'm not trying to take dog shots, or excuse me, take shots at a boutique dog hotel chain. But could you imagine telling someone from the first century that we have a palace for dogs? (laughs) Do you know how strange that would sound to them? Like probably as strange as it is us talking today about circumcision in regards to our faith or ancient covenants and their relative significance, or ancient poetry and its attempt to convey timeless truth, or big words like righteousness and saved and justification and faith, the problems between ancient Jews and Gentiles, the history of Israel. I'm not trying to make fun of the dog chain, but what I am saying is that what seems normal to us in 2022 would seem very foreign to them a few thousand years ago, and vice versa. So some of what we're gonna read is strange, especially if you have never read the Bible before or studied ancient literature. But just because it sounds strange doesn't mean that it doesn't have meaning for us today. In fact, one of the very reasons why um, I'm so compelled by the Bible is that it speaks directly to the time in which it was written, to the people and to their culture, but it also transcends that time and that culture. Its message speaks to us today. And the same is true of what we're going to read today. So, let's start jumping in. So, what is faith? <clears throat> the most basic definition of faith, um, if you're not taking notes, you can write this down: is the word trust. It, it, which means this is a very relational word. It's not merely an intellectual word, like I have faith. I believe the right things. It's a relational word. To have faith in someone or something means that you have confidence that they will do what they say, be what they say they will be. To say we have faith in Jesus means that we trust him. Okay, so what does faith do? Well, among other things, Paul's focus in chapter 4 is to tell us that we are, big words here, justified by faith. Justification is a big word and a very big concept and idea. Let me try to boil it down for the sake of time. Um, It literally means being declared righteous. Or another way of saying this is being made right with God. How are humans made right with God? The answer is faith. Which means that aside from placing your trust in Jesus, there is nothing you can do to be made right with God. There's nothing you can do, hear this again, that can make God love you or accept you any more than he already does. And there is nothing you can do to make him no longer love you. This is the idea of justification through faith. Place your trust in Jesus. You are restored and you are made right. We trust in Jesus to restore not only our broken relationship with God, but as he does that, he begins to use us and work through our life to restore the broken relationships we have with others. If you didn't know this, we believe that God is the antidote to this broken world. We trust that he will not just make us right with himself, us right with one another, but one day he will put the whole world back to right again. This section of Romans is about how the church in Rome is honestly very confused on these issues. So his goal is to provide them some important clarity. All right, chapter 4, verse 1, all that to be said, here we go. You ready? Yes, I've got three people in the front row. Ready? That's awesome. You and me. Are you ready? All right, sounds good. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Do you remember what I said about Grammarly? (laughs) There's a lot here, and it's hard to unpack. I'm going to try to summarize some of the first section of what I'm teaching, and then we're going to land the plane at the end of the chapter and spend more time there. But at the end of the previous chapter, chapter 3, Paul says that we are justified, again, made right before God by faith, trust in God and not by observing the law. We cannot boast then about the religious accomplishments or the things we do, and the Jews and the Gentiles have equal access to justification or being made right by God. And in chapter four, he develops these points specifically by looking at a man named Abraham. Now, why Abraham? Why does Paul use Abraham for this whole argument? Well, Paul is trying to convince the Christians in Rome who know Jewish history and tradition to endorse this gospel of justification. Um, In other words, remember, Paul is speaking to Roman Christians, real flesh and blood human beings that lived 2,000 years ago. And this church is a mix of both Jewish people and Gentiles. Their histories, their stories, their cultures um, are becoming an issue affecting their unity. I'm glad that we have no problems like that today. (laughs) His aim is to help them realize Um, that they actually both have something to learn. And in doing so, it will bring them together. See, Paul isn't trying to say that one is right and the other is wrong. He's actually attempting to show them that both of them have work to do to come towards what Jesus is actually doing in the world and in their life. The second is this, that Abraham is a crucial figure in God's plan to redeem a broken world. If you go back and read the book of Genesis, what you will see is a story of humanity's fall, but God initiating a plan to rescue the brokenness of this world. By chapter 12, we're introduced to a character named Abraham. Abram at the time, his name would later change. And you begin to follow his journey of faith, And then his family's journey. Abraham would have a son and his son would have a son and it eventually turned into the nation of Israel. Israel would eventually reach its climax and its purpose in the person of Jesus. See, the point here that Paul is trying to make is that God was always at work trying to use this human family to redeem all humanity. Not just the Jewish people. See, and and this is really important because at the time, see, the Jewish people had a distorted view of God's purpose and plan. They had believed that he was just trying to save the Jewish people, and in order to be saved, you had to become a Jewish person. So in doing so, he is helping them see that the Jews and the Gentiles that make up this community of faith, God is at work in both of their histories and their stories and their context and their culture to bring them into one family. In other words, he's trying to convince them that these ideas are not new, that they are on the same team, that he has been un- God has been unveiling his plan to rescue the world from millennia. Jesus' ministry, his life, and his teachings were not brand new. They helped make real and realized what God has been up to since the dawn of time. The message is the same. Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan. Apparently, there is a view that was prevalent to them, as it is often to us today, that we are made right in God's sight by the good things that we do, by the religious ceremonies we participate in, or by the heritage that we come from. And Paul aims to show that these beliefs are misunderstandings of God's real purpose and plan. And listen, he doesn't just strike them from the record, but he aims to provide more insight into each of them. Verse 9, and I'll show you how he does it. Is this blessedness... When he says blessedness, he's referring to being made right with God through faith only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before He was not after, but it before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of righteousness that had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believed but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. (laughs) Thanks, Brad, for the assignment here. (laughs) Remember the dog hotel? (laughs) This is what I mean by things sounding strange to us. Now, circumcision was a sign of an ancient covenant that God made with Israel. It was a physical mark, I won't get into the details about what kind of physical mark, but It was never intended to be the litmus test as to whether you had God's blessing or not. Never mind some of the practical physical health benefits in an ancient nomadic culture. It was also a sign that connected to the future generations of Israel. Paul is pointing out that God has initiated a relationship with Abraham and subsequently Israel by grace. Abraham then responded to God's grace by placing his trust in him. And this happened a long time before the covenant's mark of circumcision. As such, it is not the sign or the symbol, the physical act, that makes you a part of God's family. It does not make you Right with God, it is faith. As it was with Abraham, so is it with us today. Now, it's not just the physical mark of circumcision that was a barrier for the Jews and the Gentiles to see themselves as one, but there was more. Verse thirteen: It's not. it, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that they could be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. You're not made right by God through a sign. You're not made right through a religious ritual and not by doing good works, i.e. keeping the law. If anything, the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. It serves as a a way of helping us understand the brokenness that is inside of us and the brokenness that is inside of the world. Um, If you need a refresher, you can go back and listen to Brad's message titled, The Good News About Being Bad. It was a few weeks ago, and I know all of you remember everything that we say. So, the idea is that the law then shows us what brokenness ha- is in the world and inside of us and our need for redemption, our need for healing, our need for restoration. It is not keeping the law, keeping the rules that make us right before God. Okay, that's an important distinction. Again, he's saying the sign that God has given you of a promise, doing that does not make you right before God. The, keeping the rules doing the right things, and the religious rituals, they do not make you right before God. It's about faith. Apparently, there are people in Rome that believe God blesses them for being good, doing good things, that you can earn God's favor by keeping the law, that ultimately your salvation is based on your good works. Now, it's interesting how subtly this wrong idea creeps into our minds, Because it's usually less obvious, it's more of a covert thought. But you know when it comes to us? When we suffer, we think, but why? I've been so good. Or when tragedy strikes, they were such a good person. Or the converse of that we received something good and we speak of it as a blessing that was deserved for our good behavior. in that regards, it's very subtle, this way of thinking. You don't often realize that it has its hold on you. But you know what else it is? This way of thinking, it's seductive. It gives you a sense of control, (laughs) meaning that if you think that in some way, shape, or form, the good things you do, resulting God blessing you, you have a sense of power and control that can manipulate God's hand. This is why we often give into this idea. On one hand, we don't realize it. It just comes out in our prayers. It comes out in our conversations. It comes out in the way we think. On the other hand, it's seductive. We want more of it because it gives us a false sense of control and power. I remember reading a book about the prosperity gospel, and I'm going to tell you that um, when I picked it up, it was recommended to me, I was like, this doesn't apply to me, right? I'm not the televangelist that's saying like, hey, I will pray for you if you send me money so I can get my jet, right? That's typically the way I think about the words prosperity gospel. To be honest, I had a bit of a prideful heart about it. Um, Rule of thumb is whenever you think you are above something, that typically means it may have some hold on your life. As I read the book, I realized something. This idea of prosperity gospel, of prosperity thinking, is much more than getting a miracle so that guy can get his jet. At its root, it's believing we deserve God's blessing because of our behavior and our beliefs. That whole idea actually flies in the face of the gospel of grace. I don't mean to beat any of you up, but I am going to guess based on where you are and the time that you live in, there is a sense in all of us that we need to root this out. This is the contemporary significance of the ancient letter that Paul is writing, there's a part of us that all believe this, that somehow God is more pleased with us by the good things that we do and that he would reward us upon the good things that we do, which is the antithesis of the grace and the love of God. I say it like this. The good things that we do or the good works that come from our life, we do from God's grace, not for it. Say this one more time. The good works that we do, we do from God's grace, not for it. Very important distinction. You are loved. You are chosen. You are accepted. Put your faith and trust in Jesus and now live out of what is true about you not for his love or for his acceptance. It doesn't work that way. That is what Paul is saying to them then, and that is what I am saying to you today. He continues in verse 16 with one more thought. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and we may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith in Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. Hmm. All this means, amongst many things, but God's plan was always to save all the people, not just the Jewish people. Again, he had a covenant people, and his goal was to work through Israel to show the world what God was like. And again, eventually, that was Jesus, the true Israel, who shows the world who God is like. But it was not just for one people, not just if you were circumcised not just if you kept the law, not just if you could trace your heritage and lineage to Father Abraham. Paul's point is that to the uncircumcised, he is God. To those who are not keeping the law, he is God. To those who are not Jewish by heritage, Abraham is your father too, because it is not by blood, but by his trust in Jesus. And it is by your trust in Jesus that makes you a part of God's family too. That is what faith does. We've covered what is faith, what does faith do, now what does a life of faith look like? This is the last section of this chapter. So we've cleared things up, right? Hopefully, we're not restored by our good works, rites, rituals, or heritage, but by our trust in Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. What comes next? Again, Paul looks at the life of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, to define what a life of faith looks like. One of my favorite lines in all the Bible is right here. Highlight it, underline it, hold your finger down, and pick your favorite color on your Bible app. I don't care. Remember this. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. (laughs) Since he was about a hundred years old. And Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Abraham's story was not just written for him, not just written for the Jewish people, or for the Gentiles a thousand years ago, but it was written for us today, and here's how. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. The word hope is elpis, and it literally means joyful, confident, expectation of good. Believed, pisteo, it means put your trust in not just have the right ideas about God, but to literally place your life in the hands of another. So in other words, you could translate this this way. Against all joyful, confident expectation of good, Abraham put his trust in Jesus for his joyful, confident expectation of good. His hope wasn't in his dire circumstances changing, and they were pretty dire right? I love how Paul says this, his body was as good as dead, right? If you have a promise that you're going to be a father of a great nation and you're pushing 99 years old and there's no children, that is not a very good outlook on life. Can God fulfill the promise? It seems impossible. Oh, and by the way, Paul includes this detail, Sarah's womb was also about dead, (laughs) That is not a good situation if you're going to have a baby. I know, I have four of them, right? Listen, these are not good odds. The prognosis is not good. Most people would say this situation is hopeless. Paul's summary of Abraham and Sarah's story Um, In doing so, he assumes a few things because these are people that often, many of them knew the Old Testament better than we do today. Um, They can recall the stories really well. Their journey of faith was anything but easy. I want you to think about this. Abraham was called to leave everything he ever knew, Genesis chapter 12, to go someplace God would tell him where he was going along the way. Lever of the Chaldeans, this is home base. This is where the family business is located. This is where all his relationships were. God says, I have a plan to work through your family to rescue the entire world. And one day you will have descendants that are as numerous as the stars, and I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to all of human history. You just have to leave and not know where you're going. And he's like, okay, let's go. He's about 70 years old when that happens. Do you know when Isaac is born, his son? 30 years later. 30! We are so impatient. (laughs) Could you endure and press in and hold on to a promise of God for 30 years? Some of you have. I know some of you. I know your stories. Your marriage is a testament to enduring and holding on to and believing. The business you own is a testament to believing and holding on to the promise of God. 30 years. And it's not just 30 years. Like, listen, when Abraham left the city he was in, he traveled 700 miles to present-day Iraq, then another 700 miles to Syria, then another 800 miles to Egypt, and then back to Canaan. Thousands of miles, and he doesn't have a car, he doesn't have a bike, feet. <laughs> Thousands of miles, 30 years, that's a long ways. And if you know his story, it is not up and to the right all the time. Failure and mistakes, trying to take God's promise into his own hands, and messing things up left and right. Again, the promise of God is not predicated on Abraham being perfect. It's predicated on the fact that when God says he's going to do something, he is faithful to do it. I think a lot of us are shaped more, I think this is a general truth, and I'm going to share it with you, that we are shaped more by the journey than we are by reaching the destination. We want to get there, right? Plug it in our Apple Maps or Google Maps or whatever maps you use we see how many minutes we have, and the goal is how can we get there as fast as we possibly can. Rerouting, right? We wanna get there. And sometimes we're so focused on getting there that we forget that the process to arrive actually does something to us. I would argue often more. But see, the reason why we don't like what I just said is because the process to get there is filled with hard things. And if you're anything like me, I like to avoid hard things, to run from it, to turn away from it. I had a mentor in my life ask me this question this last week. What if instead of trying to avoid hard things or run from them, you leaned into them? What if instead we explored hard, moved into it? And ask the ever hard but very important question, how is God going to use this in my life? Abraham and Sarah's life was marked by the kind of trust that walked into hard, into hopeless, and into fear-filled. And here's why. Their hope was not that their circumstances were going to magically change. Their hope was in a person. Their faith was in Jesus we can have that same kind of faith. What does it look like? It looks like this. Against all hope, Ken in hope believed. Against all hope, Anna in hope believed. Against all hope, Tyson in hope believed. Put your name in the place of Abraham. Put your situation, 30 years, thousands of miles, in place of theirs. Does it seem less likely than theirs? Probably not. The same God that walked alongside Abraham and Sarah is the same God who walks alongside of you too. If there is only one thing you take away from today, Let it be these seven words. Against all hope, you in hope believed. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we look at the story like this, a lot of words, but we are reminded of their importance. There will always be a temptation and a tendency to work for your love, not from it. There will always be this sense in us that we are not maybe good enough, but we remember the story here, we remember the stories um, that we repeat over and over again. We don't have to be. You were good enough for us. Your goodness, your righteousness on us, and we become sons and daughters of the living God all we need to do simply is this, put our faith in you. This morning we create space for all of us to repent, all of us to move into a space where we recognize that in some way we've erred, erred in believing that we can somehow move your hand into blessing or erred into believing that we think that somehow our goodness is based on the good things that we do. Or perhaps we've gone down a road where we have put our faith and trust in other things and other people only to be disappointed. Today we come back to you. Repent sounds like such a harsh word, but it just means turn around. Whatever path we were going, turn around and come back to you. So that's what we do this morning. And then Jesus, we ask for a faith. Um, a faith that looks like this. Against all hope. In hope. In hope we believed. Thank you, Jesus, for moving in our midst and give us an imagination now to see what kind of world this would look like if we as a people embraced this. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. We have a tradition around here. It's a prayer of blessing on your way out. It's called the benediction. If you want to stand with me, I'll speak that over you. May you be a people of faith, a people who work from God's grace and not for it. And may you be a people who have the courage to trust the goodness of God in your life. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, hey, it's great to be with you today. Yeah, again, go to our info center if you're new. We'd love to connect with you. We have some elders here, orange name tags. They would love to pray with you. They'll be around. We love you guys. Have a good week. Stay cool today. We'll see you later.